remembering and teaching the good and the bad. So we talk about Jews that own slaves, own enslaved people mm -hmm. um, that fought for the Confederacy. These were these were mostly new Americans that you know immigrants or sons and daughters of immigrants trying to fit in. Oftentimes immigrants are the lowest rung of the ladder. These immigrants in the South were not the lowest rung of the ladder because African Americans were the lowest rung of the ladder. So automatically they had an advantage. And like most people, they took advantage of that advantage. Welcome, you're listening to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. You've just heard a clip from our interview with Kenneth Hoffman, Executive Director at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans. The museum, which opened in 2021 during the pandemic, explores the many ways that Jews in the American South influenced and were influenced by the distinct cultural heritage of their communities. Kenneth took us through the museum and we weaved our way around other visitors while he shared the diverse relationships and experiences encountered by Jewish communities in the American South from the colonial era to the present day. Many of the stories you'll hear in today's episode are not widely known. But before we uncovered those stories, we had to ask Kenneth how this museum came to be in New Orleans. Well, this is a reboot of a museum that existed before, previously ah. in the state of Mississippi okay. at a Jewish summer camp mm -hmm. in the middle of Mississippi. So right there, that phrase is very strange to some people, a Jewish summer camp in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. But it's true. Um, in the 1980s, when small town Jewish populations across the South were disappearing because the children were going off to college and not wanting to return to the small town, they wanted to be in Atlanta or Nashville or New Orleans or Dallas. So the towns were disappearing, so the camp served as a repository for a lot of the religious um, artifacts and items from synagogues. Hmm. Uh, and they built a little museum at the camp. Uh, but it was very much for the campers and their parents. It was very sort of inward looking. They closed that museum in 2012 and they decided to make a museum that was more outward looking. And they looked for a city that had a lot of tourists coming through, that had a lot of um, Jewish history, mm -hmm. um, and that had a lot of support for this kind of a museum. Um, so New Orleans was chosen, mm -hmm. and we set about to recreate, the, not even recreate it, because it's a totally new museum. It's modern, um, we, it has new artifacts, it has an expanded mission, um, and we managed to open it right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Of course you did. <laughs> we were My delayed goodness. a little bit from when we wanted to open, but we finally got it open. Wow, well, and you know, and it's thriving. We walked in and there are a ton of people here. So I We've know got a great group of uh, senior citizens in here from, mm -hmm. a local, um, from a local place. And we just love welcoming locals, tourists, northerners, southerners, Jews, non-Jews, everyone's welcome. Excellent. So Kenneth, given that we're here in New Orleans and when we think about uh, the Jewish population in America, we don't always think about the South. Uh, 
in terms of that experience? What is unique about the Jewish experience in this region of the country? Well, I like to I like to use the metaphor or the story. If you if I ask ten people what their vision of immigration to the United States is, nine out of ten are going to say Ellis Island, mm-hmm. and and there's good reason for that. Millions of millions of immigrants from all over the world came to the United States through mm-hmm. Ellis Island. But that's not the full story of immigration to the United States. People did come to other regions, and the South is one of them. So what we're trying to do is to um, expand people's understanding of what it means to be a Southerner, what it means to be Jewish, and ultimately what it means to be an American. Because we are a country of immigrants, mm-hmm. um, and uh, all these different folks, you know, down here in New Orleans, uh, we love gumbo. And we talk about, you know, all the different ingredients that go into the gumbo. And the more you put in there, the more delicious it gets. Just make sure you don't put tomatoes in there. <laughs> that's not what we do. Um, and so uh, the museum here is is telling stories that otherwise wouldn't be told. Can you take us through some of those stories? Let's go take a look. Okay. Come on. The first stop in our journey through the museum was a gallery that examines the Jewish immigration story from American ports into the interior of the South. As you'll hear, Kenneth believes it is important to share the full narrative of our history, both good and bad. So we call this first gallery from immigrants to Southerners, and it really starts way back 1585 when first Jews show up in the Virginia colony. This is before the Jews show up in New Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. which becomes New York. Not that it's a competition, but we were here first. Um, So we know that people coming into the museum have different levels of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so we like to start out with a timeline with some some, specific um, historical events that sort of weave Southern Jewish history in with Southern history and ultimately American history because Southern history is American history. So we have timelines, we have maps, we have of course artifacts because that's what makes a museum really special in this day and age of virtual everything. Mm -hmm. To have the real pieces of history is something unique. So we have a collection of over 4,000 objects there, we don't have 4,000 objects on display, but we have 4,000 objects that we can display. So for instance, here is a family Bible that is written in Hebrew and French, because this is from an Alsatian Jewish family that moved to Southern Louisiana, because Southern Louisiana at the time had a lot of French speakers. Mm-hmm. So they felt more at home. And just like a family Bible, anyone else's family Bible, they have written Um, you know, important family dates in there. Where are you um, getting these artifacts from? Are are families contributing? Families contribute, congregations contribute. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I will buy something off of eBay. (laughs) You know, things like old postcards that show storefronts or synagogues, things mm-hmm. like that. This is a, this is a traveler's Beautiful. trunk, an immigrant's trunk. Um, 
you know, I spoke about Ellis Island earlier. Galveston, Texas was mm -hmm. the Ellis Island of the South. And 10,000 Jews came through Galveston between 1907 and 1914 purposefully. They were like rerouted from the Northeast, which was getting overcrowded. Mm -hmm. So Jews were brought in purposefully through Galveston. And today there are families in Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and throughout the Midwest who can trace their ancestors to those that came through Galveston. These are the 13 Southern states that the museum covers. The 13 states include Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. People have different opinions. How come you don't include Missouri? Why do you include, you know, um, uh, Oklahoma? Or why do you include Southern Florida? That's mm -hmm. not the South. Well, this is our South. If you right. want to have another South, you make your own museum. <laughs> okay. So we talk about after the immigrants come in, how they then move throughout the South. As the South is being created, they are there. Why are they there? They're there because the South is primarily agricultural. These Jews haven't been allowed, for many of them, to own land in Europe for, for centuries. They haven't been allowed to join the guilds. So they have honed their own merchant skills, their own networks. So here's an agricultural region just starting out. Some of these towns are just clearing forests and swamps. Uh, and, and farmers are going in and planting. And here comes the peddler man. Mm -hmm. And the peddler man goes from farm to farm and he's got tools for the farmer and pots and pans for the wife and toys for the kids. So they're thrilled to see him. You know, there was no, there was no Amazon back then <laughs> um, or Walmart. So, so we have the peddlers um, and they, you know, are part of the economic system. Now you can't talk about the history of the South or you really can't talk about the history of the United States without talking about race. Yes. It is, we like to say it's the blanket that covers everything. Mm -hmm. um, and even today, the news is showing us that these debates, if you wanna call them debates, mm -hmm. um, are still going on about what it is we should be remembering and teaching. We think we should be remembering and teaching the good and the bad. Amen. So we talk about Jews that own slaves, own enslaved people mm -hmm. um, that fought for the Confederacy. These were, these were mostly new Americans that, you know, immigrants or sons and daughters of immigrants trying to fit in. Oftentimes immigrants are the lowest rung of the ladder. These immigrants in the South were not the lowest rung of the ladder because African-Americans were the lowest rung of the ladder. So automatically they had an advantage. And like most people, they took advantage of that advantage. Jews owned enslaved people in the South at about the same percentage as non-Jewish white Southerners. Mm. A few rose to prominence. This is on this Confederate note this $2 Confederate note, this is Judah P. Benjamin, who was a senator from Louisiana, which shows that Jews had gained some level of acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, and when Louisiana seceded, 
he, um, he uh, resigned from the United States Senate and started working with the Confederacy. He eventually became Secretary of State for the Confederacy. Yeah. So, you know, he's a very prominent example, obviously not, um, you know, not, the, not what everyone experienced, not everybody was in the Confederate cabinet. But we talk about um, the, the, the selling of slaves. We have a, we have a diary here of a man who, a Jewish man from Mississippi who fought for the Confederacy um, and became an officer. And this is the first time this diary is ever being shown publicly. And as you're looking at it, you can see the light in this case is on. But when we walk away from this case, the light will dim back down because this is old stuff with old ink on it. Right. So we have to be very careful not to use too much light on there. And I don't mean to move you away, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, after the Civil War is when is when the the Jewish businesses really start to have an impact on the Southern lifestyle and, or the Southern economy because the banking system had been destroyed during the Civil War. So farmers needed seed and supply to get their cotton in the ground or their tobacco or their sugarcane or their rice. And so store owners, not just Jewish store owners, mm -hmm. but these Jewish store owners could lend farmers seed and supply with an agreement at the end of the year when the crop comes in, bring it to us and we'll factor it. We'll, we will commission mm -hmm. it and sell it down the river, down from Memphis, down to New Orleans or whatever, because cotton in particular was a global commodity. Here's from 1900. Here is a, uh, the daily cotton figures from New Orleans, New York, and Liverpool. Mm -hmm. So again, we're seeing that the South, a lot of people think the South is very provincial, it's very backward, it's not connected to the rest of the world. Well, this is, in the, this is September 15th, 1900, and New Orleans, New York, and Liverpool, that was the world cotton market at the time. So we were very connected, especially here in New Orleans, to a world economy. You know, I, I want to um, just, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much, um, but something, what I learned, what you shared over there about the uh, Jewish immigrants who were slave owners surprised me because in, you know, contemporary history that mm -hmm. I learned, Jewish um, uh, people are allies of African Americans, mm -hmm. especially during the civil rights uh, movement. And so I'm thinking, where did the shift Happen. So that's very interesting. So you happen to be here during the week of Passover, the, the mm -hmm. holiday of Passover, which is all about the exodus from Egypt, the slaves, you know, the Hebrews um, leaving Egypt. And we say, because we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, we have to remember this and celebrate our liberation. And, and when you think about before the Civil War, there were Southern Jewish families sitting down at their ceremonial meal, their Seder. Maybe they, they may have had slaves serving them. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word Seder translates to the word order. Order and ritual are very important in the ceremonial Passover Seder dinner, which is a blending of religious rituals, food, song, and storytelling. So it's a very... Um, 
uh, sort of a dissociative idea, like how could that be? Um, but then you look at, at anyone who reads the Bible and sees some mixed messages and I don't want to get really, you know, religious, so to speak, right. but you know, there are, you know, about freedom and, and God's children. And, but then there's also rules about how to treat your slaves. Mm. So, um, so it's not our proudest moments, mm. but it's part of the history and it's mm -hmm. important to tell it. And mm -hmm. we, you know, important that people know that young people know, um, so that they can move forward with the knowledge they need to be the kind of person that's going to be a better citizen for everybody. Yes, and I appreciate you sharing, um, you know, the full narrative of, of that history. I mean, it, it's critical. Absolutely, we we do a lot of sort of celebrating of mm -hmm. you know, oh, like right behind us is a, a picture of the first Jewish Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis from uh, from Kentucky. You know, and we and we like to do that because some of these stories are really fascinating, um, but it's not all celebratory, okay. you know, it is a, a true look at the, the good and the bad. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that illuminates our common humanity and uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Support World Footprints by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This will help other like-minded and interested travelers find us. Also, please join the World Footprints community by subscribing to our newsletter from worldfootprints.com. The land flourished because it was fed from so many sources, because it was nourished by so many cultures and traditions and peoples. President Lyndon B. Johnson. Here's more of our conversation with Kenneth Hoffman, Executive Director of the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. Kenneth, as we think about uh, the Jewish community here in the South, uh, when we look at other places around the country, we see Jews at every strata. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense of Jewish life here in the South, uh, because you, we've mm -hmm. talked about a lot of Jewish people who were at the top of the economic mm -hmm. strata, but how about sure. those who would Well, let's 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 go into this corner, actually. Um, so first of all, we have a, a little text panel here, more than merchants. Mm -hmm. Not everyone was a store owner. There were yeah. teachers and yeah. architects and dentists sure. and, you know, all those kind of things, too. And people and farmers mm -hmm. uh, and cattle ranchers in Texas. There were Jewish cowboys. Mm -hmm. um, but this corner, we purposefully put the, these two ideas in a corner because they meet up. This side says votes of acceptance, and it talks about all the towns in the South that have elected Jews as mayors, and some multiple times. Like Galveston has had five Jewish mayors. Hmm. The little town of Donaldsonville, Louisiana has had five Jewish mayors. The, uh, the town of... Um, Dumas, Arkansas, the first two mayors of an incorporated Dumas, Arkansas were Jewish men. Mm. That's another kind of like, that's like that Jewish camp in Mississippi. Yeah. You know, it's like, how did that happen? Well, it happened because these merchants uh, cared about their towns. Mm. They wanted to see civic improvement. They wanted to see schools built and streets paved. 
and so they put their efforts toward those things and gained the respect of their non-Jewish neighbors um, and, uh, and, you know, were elected to the school board and to the alderman and to the mayor. So we have that, votes of acceptance. This here is one of my favorite pictures. This is our unofficial mascot. His name is Willie Sklar. And he was the mayor of Louise, Mississippi, a three-term mayor of Louise, Mississippi. I just love it. I love his look. He's, look at those eyes. <laughs> Maybe don't look into the eyes. No, I don't no, know. he's dapper. <laughs> but over here, we have an age-old prejudice, anti-Semitism. Mm. Anti-Semitism did exist in the South, like everywhere. Um, not necessarily uh, in a rampant way that people might expect. You know, the South is the Bible Belt. The South is a land of racial violence. The South, you know, is maybe more intolerant of outsiders. So you might think that Judaism would be under constant anti-Semitic threat. Not really true. However, there were times both of violent anti-Semitism as well as more regular social uh, ostracism or anti-Semitism. So, what we're talking about here, the images are one of the greatest um, examples of anti-Semitism, the lynching of Leo Frank, who was convicted of the 1913 murder of Mary Fagan. The trial, this is in Georgia, the trial was heavily, heavily tinged with anti-Semitism. There is a lot of evidence to support uh, Leo Frank's innocence, but he was convicted, he was sentenced to death. Governor John Slayton commuted, commuted the death sentence to life in prison. Here he is being hanged in effigy. This is not, this is not a person. This is a, a dummy, an effigy okay. of the governor. And it says King of the Jews, because mm. people didn't like that, that he commuted the death sentence. They broke Leo Frank out of jail, the mob, um, and they lynched him mm. in 1915. This was a huge uh, shock to American Jews, not just Southern Jews, but Jews who had been here for two, three, four, seven generations. They felt like they were safe here. And then this happened and it was a very kind of scary moment. Now, when I say that, I always add that the same year, 1915, that Leo Frank was lynched, more than 20 African Americans in Georgia alone were lynched as well. So. Uh, you know, lynching, the, the, the lynching of Leo Frank was, was a tragedy and a major blow. Um, but within the context of lynching, the history of lynching, you know, uh, we have to understand the whole, mm -hmm. the totality of it um, to see that many, many more people were affected than just Jews. What about anti-Semitism in the South today? Well... You know, so I grew, you know, just personally, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I didn't experience anti-Semitism. Um, th that, everyone is a little different, right? I mean, there's not a monolithic African-American community. There's not a monolithic uh, Latinx community. So you, know, you have to look at, at differences. There may be people that can say, look, I ha had a lot of anti-Semitism, you know, in my school or, um, you know, at, at my place of work. I am fortunate to not have had any anti-Semitism or, or experienced any anti-Semitism. But sure, 
these age-old prejudices exist um, in the last few years. The political situation in the country, um, it, you know, has deteriorated or, you know, I don't, blah, blah, blah. We're, <laughs> let's keep it light. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and of course, we're not a museum that's reacting to the news cycle. Right. You know, um, but having, even though I just said that, we do feel a part of our mission is to introduce people to strangers in a strange land and show how those strangers in a strange land can um, contribute to the strength and vitality of their community. And this artifact is my favorite in the museum. It's beautiful. It is a crazy quilt made by the Jewish Ladies Sewing Circle of Canton, Mississippi in 1885. They got together, they made this quilt to raffle off to uh, support the synagogue, to raise money for the synagogue. So A, it's a beautiful piece of textile history. But even more importantly, B, it is a metaphor for people coming together, adding their talents, mm -hmm. their time, their effort to create something that then benefits the community. And that's sort of the metaphor if you're walking through here and you're not Jewish, you're not from the South, whatever, that's, that's the message that you have something to contribute to your community, just like Jews have, you know, throughout American history. Uh, and we revisit this metaphor at the end of the exhibit where we let people sew their own quilt square by so I'm making little air quotes because it's electronic <laughs> right but let's uh, go see a little more okay. and uh, we'll get to that Kenneth takes us into the next gallery that showcases the foundations of Judaism and the diversity in Jewish beliefs and practices and it's really a Judaism 101 what are the holidays what are the life cycle events um, what do Jews believe how do they practice um, and so for folks who aren't familiar with the religion itself, mm -hmm. that's what this gallery is for. Of course, all of the artifacts in here are from the South, from Southern families or congregations. Mm -hmm. This is a talus, which is a Jewish prayer shawl, mm -hmm. and it is woven from cotton that was grown in Cary, Mississippi, on the Grunfest farm. The Grunfest family has owned this land since 1919, and they made this talus out of their own cotton. We don't own this talus. It is on loan to us mm -hmm. from this family because when they have a bar or bat mitzvah, when they have a wedding, we will send it back to them <laughs> oh. to use. And that's why we're called the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience and not the Museum of Southern Jewish History, okay. because this is a continual yeah. evolution and experience. What you're seeing here is some fun. We have some audiovisual things, some quizzes um, to learn about, you know, the Jewish holidays. There's a Yiddish quiz. We always, we ask people, how much Yiddish do you know? <laughs> and they'll say, I don't know any. And we'll say, I, I bet you do, you know, and we'll show like the first question here. You're not going, uh, actually, this one's tough. This one's a tough one. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. See, Bobby, Bobby likes it there, but let's <laughs> see if I can get the one. I'm such a blank. I dropped the eggs. 
Schmutz. Uh, schmutz. Well, you have to you have to slide oh. it up there. Oh. Try again. And you can come over here, and you can see, and Bubby will help you. She'll tell you that schmutz means dirt or a stain. Oh, okay. okay. So that's not it. It's not ah. klutz. Yes. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Well, there you go. So there are a lot of words that have become, you know, that have, like schlep was the one I was looking for because a lot of people know what schlep means. We do, um, we are conscious when we design the exhibit, mm -hmm. we were very conscious to include women's stories, to include children's stories, to include Jews of color because 12% of American Jews are Jews of color. And so you're going to see some good representation throughout the museum. Excellent. As we move into the 20th century, this is gallery three. So now we're moving back into a chronology and there are some other folks in here. So I'm going to not talk as loud. Okay. So we start out again with a timeline of some important, you know, world events, World War One, suffrage, the suffragist movement for women's votes, World War Two, the civil rights movement. So that introduces this century, the two major events in the 20th century for Jews and for folks in the South were World War Two and the Holocaust and the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And we introduce our two galleries about those topics here with this photo of Ernst Borinsky teaching students at Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi. Ernst fled Germany when Hitler kicked all the Jews out of the universities, he came to the United States along with other German Jewish professors. Many were not able to get jobs because even in the United States, there were quotas on how many Jews you could have on your faculty. So about 55 of these German Jewish professors found jobs at historically black colleges and universities. Uh -huh. So here he is teaching. So this ties together the Holocaust story, the civil rights story. Mm -hmm. It's just a nice, you know, ribbon to put around it. And I love the fact that there is, uh, that war and peace is shown in <laughs> Is That's what he's teaching, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, um... And we spoke to students of his who mm -hmm. told us how much, how, you know, what an what a, um, important person he was in their education, in their lives. While many of these pairings between Jewish academic refugees and black colleges were born out of convenience, very often, they blossomed into lifelong matches. Earlier, you were mentioning that Jew, the, the, the allyship of Jews and African-Americans during the civil rights movement. Again, this is an area where there's good and bad. Mm -hmm. Jews in the Northeast, like the Freedom Riders, the young students who got on the buses mm -hmm. um, and came down. When they came down, Jews in the South got very nervous. Maybe they supported the civil rights movement, but didn't want to do so loudly or out in public because what could happen? The synagogue could get bombed by the KKK, which it did in Atlanta, in Jackson, in Meridian, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So there were real fears of standing out, of making trouble. Um, however, at the same time, we have stories of rabbis um, like, um, like Rabbi Rothschild in Atlanta, um, being friends with Martin Luther King Jr. 
So we have a timeline here specifically about the civil rights movement, um, you know, showing Jewish um, integration, reactions to it, that sort of thing. Um, we just had a program here, a, a um, biographer of Morris Abram, who was a lawyer from Georgia, a white man, who fought for the one man, one vote uh, principle. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know to help that everyone should be able to vote and the voting should be, should be uh, fair. So um, so that those are some of the stories we tell in this gallery. Excellent. And now we're coming. You're going to start to see we're getting close to the end. A lot of a lot more color. Here is a wall of um, of Southern Jews in popular culture area that maybe some people wouldn't know or realize that like Lieutenant Commander Data is uh, from Houston, Texas and is Jewish. Mm. Um, so Tony Randall from The Odd Couple is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm. So the idea is just that there are people who um, have participated in our national life, our national cultural life, who grew up Jewish in the South and have some great stories. Mm. This is the original cash register from what would become Steinmark. This is from Greenville, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Steinmark started in Greenville, Mississippi. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then the at the end, we uh, let people sit down and do some exploring um, of some of the items we have in our collection that aren't on display. So they can, um, you know, look at some uh, things that are in our storage area that, that maybe will be on display at some point, but they aren't now. And if you remember, I told you about the quilt. This is where people sew their own patch um, to add to the community quilt by choosing fabrics that represent them. You can see this one has Texas on it. There's some, there's, there's the desert. There is uh, bagels and locks. Um, so there's all sorts of different, there's like 50 different, um, different um, fabrics, and then they can put patches on them. This person likes to garden. This person maybe is, uh, has a Muslim in their family and Christians and Jews in their family because they put those patches. They like to write. They chose that. So, and then once you create your patch, you then push a button and it sends it into the community quilt. The more people who participate, the more beautiful, the stronger, the crazier, because it's a crazy quilt, um, it gets. And, if, and you can email your square to yourself. And so it's, it's just a nice way to make sure everyone knows this is a museum. These are ideas for everyone. Everyone is welcome in the museum. Everyone should be welcome in their communities. This museum, dear, I think is very, very important. There's so much rich history there, so much history that we don't know, and I'm very impressed uh, that Kenneth and museum leadership is very committed to telling the full uh, historical narratives, in both good and bad, as, as we heard. And 
I think one of my favorite, I mean, there were many favorite moments, but I really enjoyed making a quilt. <laughs> and I realized that perhaps I'm not as creative as I thought when I, when I made my, my quilt. The Community Quilt Interactive is one of the unique attractions at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience, and it's a way for visitors to participate and find themselves part of the Jewish community through this very intimate experience of creativity, of identifying themselves and identifying things that are thematic to this Jewish experience that kind of relate to us on an individual level and make that part of a larger community uh, collaboration. The other thing I you know, was very impressed uh, by was that this museum actually opened during the pandemic in 2021, and it's, it's flourishing. You know, when we were there, there were quite a few visitors that we kind of had to navigate around uh, to do this interview, uh, but it's, it's, it's popular. It's, you know, it's not in the French Quarter. It's in an, uh, uh, an area you know, a bit of a distance from the French Quarter, uh, but yet people were flocking to that museum when we were there. Yeah, it's it's in the burgeoning museum district near the World War II Museum, and so it's definitely worth a visit. Uh, it's, a, it's a different experience. The interactive galleries uh, provide a different way to experience history and culture, and I think thought the presentation itself was very powerful, as well as the stories. Uh, we don't really think much about Jews in the South, but there's Especially a... Especially slave owners. Yeah, that's, owners. That's, that's, that's a part of it. But there's also just, just a broader context as how Jews and others, whether it's uh, white Southerners, uh, African Americans, all related through... Uh, these various communities and so to see that story told was pretty powerful. Indeed and uh, I certainly learned a lot and certainly more about the uh, the Jewish religion um, in the the second gallery that we walked through. Victor Frankl once said, then I guessed the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so happy that you joined us here. It would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love for you to join our community, so please subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. Our newsletter is full of travel tips. Our newsletter is full of travel news, tips, and resources, including our favorite links. Thank you for your support and for giving us the space to share the world through the stories we offer on World Footprints. Until next time, commit to choosing love. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. 
Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.